Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in the second audio dealing with Matthew 9. In this audio, we're going to take, talk about fasting. We're going to talk about the healing of Jairus' 12-year-old daughter. We're going to talk about the woman with the issue of blood. Starting with verse 14, Then John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? This is John the Baptist, of course. His disciples were still following John. In fact, they were up there around the Galilee region, even though John was in the south. And they were still following John, even though John was still in prison, according to John Gill and according to the NIV Study Bible. John's still in prison. Disciples are still baptizing in for repentance. Now, here's some options as to why John's disciples were fasting, according to the NIV Study Bible. First, they were mourning because John was in prison. Maybe so. Or it could be, since they were preaching repentance, fasting was an expression of repentance. That could be, too. Or it could be both. Now, what was their motives? Why did the disciples come to Jesus to ask this question? Well, it could be that they were offended that Jesus, Jesus would be having a big feast. From this, uh, uh, The context of this, Matthew, in, in the first part of chapter 9, gave a big feast with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees could have been, excuse me, John's disciples could have been offended that Jesus would be having a big feast while their master was in jail. That's John Gill's idea. It could be that the Pharisees had actually challenged the followers of John on this point. How come you're fasting, and but the disciples of Jesus are not fasting? Shame, shame, shame. Well, it's hard to know exactly why they came to Jesus with that question, and it's also not clear with which tone the question was spoken in. Was it a mere inquiry? Gee, Jesus, why is it that you guys aren't fasting, that your disciples aren't fasting? Or, as John Gill says, maybe it was reproof. John's disciples came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? What's the matter with you? In other words, there might be a little bit of reproach there. Of course, I, I can't imagine people reproaching Jesus too much. You know, I mean, after all, he was the Messiah, and people were flocking to him by the scadzillions, and he was healing people all over the place. So maybe John Gill is wrong about that. Maybe it was just an inquiry, but it was an honest inquiry. Why not? Now, the fast that, that the disciples of John were talking about were not public fast enjoined by the law of Moses. There was actually just one of those, yeah, the, the Day of Atonement. But the boy, did the rabbis have private fast everywhere. For example, every Monday and Thursday, uh, they fasted. Luke 18:12 references this in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisees, where the tax collector said he was a sinner, and the Pharisees stood up and boasted about how what a great righteous person he was. And in that boast, he says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get, and I fast twice a week. So fasting was a big deal with the Pharisees. In fact, if there was no rain on the 17th of Marcusavon, this is a day in a month in October, a day in October, then they scheduled a three-day private fast. If there was any sort of unpleasant occasion, pestilence, famine, war, sieges, or floods, they passed it after the tragedy. If they had a dream, they needed to have a fast to interpret the dream. Or maybe to avoid an ill omen in a dream. They needed to fast to get rid of the bad thing that was going to happen to them that they dreamed. Or they might fast so that they might have good dreams. John Gill says it is almost incredible what frequent fasting some of the rabbis exercised themselves with on every insignificant occasion. So it was certainly no shame that Jesus' disciples weren't fasting like the rabbis. After all, the law only required it on the Day of Atonement. Now... Let's look at the development of fasting, according to the NIV Study Bible. As I said, the Mosaic Law only required, required fasting on the Day of Atonement. And then after the Babylonian exile, the Jews added some four-yearly fast. I think mainly, uh, at least one of them was because of the, the day, what is it, the 8th of Ab, I think it is, when, uh, or Ab, 
when the Babylonians wiped out Jerusalem in 586, 587-586 B.C. But anyway, there were four yearly fasts that were added to the to the fast on the Day of Atonement. So that's not very much. By the time we get down to Jesus' time, however, they were fasting twice a week. Now, what about the application today? A lot of Christians like to fast, and I always say, there's nothing wrong with fasting. We're going to see here in a minute that Jesus said uh, when the bridegroom is taken away, then you can fast, but while the groom is with them, why do you fast? It's a, it's a festive time, and G- even though Jesus isn't with us today, his Holy Spirit is, so do we need to fast? Well, there's so many testimonies of the spiritual good it's done, and I've done it myself, and it does. When you get hungry, and then all of a sudden you start thinking about God instead of your stomach, it's amazing. You do get closer to God. I've got nothing wrong with fasting, but it is not required. We should never, ever require that of a Christian. It's an optional thing, a matter of freedom. Matthew chapter 9, verse 15 says this, Jesus said to them, to John's disciples, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? Of course, the wedding guests are Jesus' disciples, and the groom is Jesus. And as a matter of fact, the wedding guest could not be sad. It's interesting that the Jewish law, the rabbi's law, exempted the friend of the bridegroom from many obligations, uh, some of which obligations could be interpreted as, as being somewhat sad or somewhat rigorous, somewhat not joyous. For example, uh, the friend of the bridegroom, according to law, could not stay in a booth at the Feast of Tabernacles because you can't be festive in a booth. This is from John Gill, the rabbinic expert. The bridegroom didn't have to engage in prayer. He didn't have... The, excuse me, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, didn't have to engage in prayer. He didn't have to wear phylacteries. He didn't have to fast. He didn't have to mourn. So the Pharisees themselves had the answer to their own question because the bridegroom was there, Jesus. The wedding guests were there, the disciples. What's the point of being sad? This is a time of joy, not fasting. Now, when he says when the time will come when the groom will be taken away, that's, of course, referring to his crucifixion. Then they will fast because fasting is, a, is usually done when you're mourning. And, of course, the disciples would be mourning for those three days when he was taken away from them. Matthew chapter 9, verse 16 through 17. Changing the subject here. Jesus says, No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. I said it's a change of subject. You know, there could be a connection. The fasting regime of the Pharisees referring to the old garment and the old wineskins, and there's no point in that because we're at a time of joy now. New clothes, new wine. We don't want to put that back into that old fasting system of the of the Pharisees. That very well could be. But at any rate, this is a very easy to understand parable and it's used a lot. Uh, when it says wine skins, it's, uh, they used goat skins were used to hold wine. And if you put new wine in a new goat skin, the wine would ferment, bubble up, let out oxygen. And as the gases expand, the, the goat skin, since it was new, it would expand too. But if you put that new wine into an old goat skin, and the goat skin had already expanded because it was an old goat skin, it would not be able to expand anymore. So when the gases from the fermenting wine started expanding, it would pop the goat skin and break it. And then, of course, after the goat skin was broken, the wine would spill. Now, what this analogy was that Jesus was making is he's saying that his kingdom was so new it couldn't fit into the old Pharisaic forms, the rabbinic Phariseeism that was ruling the day. And that's pretty obvious. If you look at Phariseeism pretty long, you realize this has nothing to do with Jesus. And he gives another metaphor, which is exactly the same, an old garment. If you 
take an old garment which is already stretched out and you put a new patch on the old garment, the new patch is going to shrink because it's new. Well, it's going to shrink and pull away from the threads that have attached it to the old garment. The old garment's not going to shrink with it because it's already shrunk. Shrunk as much as it's going to shrink. It's the same, but this point is the same. The Pharisees are old. Jesus' kingdom is new. So forget it, guys. Forget the Pharisees. Look into my kingdom. The Pharisees focused on their traditions, the traditions of their elders. They took away from the commandments of God. They made void the commandments of God. They were making the Jewish religion worse and worse and worse. Matthew 9, verse 18, as he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter is near death, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Now the leader here is a leader of a synagogue. Sometimes it says ruler of a synagogue, depending on your translation. I used to wonder who these rulers were. I was thinking government in Jerusalem. No, it's not the government in Jerusalem. It's talking about a synagogue ruler, a leader of a synagogue. Now, this synagogue was at Capernaum, according to John Gill. And his name, the synagogue leader, was named Jairus. Mark 5.22, our master of detail, says this. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, that's J-A-I-R-U-S, Jairus, came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now, who was this synagogue ruler? Ruler. Well, he was a layman. He was not an official religious person. His duties included looking after the building, supervising the worship, selecting participants in the worship, maintaining order. Most synagogues only had one ruler. There were exceptions. Sometimes the title was honorary and there were no duties involved at all. But one thing we know about synagogue leaders is very few of them believed in Jesus. We know this from John chapter 7, verse 48. This is when the Pharisees were complaining about the temple guardsmen about not arresting Jesus properly. The Pharisees said this, have any of the rulers, that's the synagogue rulers, have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? So apparently not many of them had, but Jairus did. Now notice what Jairus' attitude was. He says, Jesus, if you lay your hands on her, she will live. Is that faith? That's faith. Once again, belief in Jesus and trusting in Jesus and his power and his status as the Messiah that got Jesus moved. That moved Jesus. He would, eat, he would do something and he would praise the person who had the faith. And Jairus had the faith. And again, he's not a Jew. He's a Roman. Oh, excuse me. He is a Jew. Excuse me. Got him mixed up with a centurion whose servant was healed earlier. This is uh, Jairus. He is a Jew. And he has faith. He has lots of faith. Now, the daughter, that his daughter who was sick was about 12 years old. We know this again from Mark 5, verse 42. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk after Jesus healed her. She was 12 years old, and they were utterly astounded. Luke 8, 42 says this because he had an only daughter about 12 years old. So here from Luke, we learn another detail about this little girl. She was 12, and she was Jairus' only daughter. And you can imagine the fear and the and the grief and the despair that his only daughter was just about to die. It reads kind of cold when you read it. But if you can imagine this guy watching his daughter about to die, and he's coming to Jesus saying, please heal her. All right, she, according to Mark, was at the point of death. Luke says she was at death's door. She was dying. So she was close. She was close to shuffling off this mortal coil. And that's, where she, that's how she was when Jairus left the house. As it turns out, before they could get back to the house, she had indeed died. So they didn't make it, make it personally. Matthew 9, verses 19 through 21. Jesus got up and began to follow him, but began to follow Jairus. And so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. 
for she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. That fringe that she touched, some people say that was Jesus's rabbi cloak. The rabbis, you know, had these famous fringe tassels on the fringe of their cloak that showed that they were learned teachers of the law. And Gil says this was to show that Jesus was keeping the ceremonial law. I don't so. I don't know if I would go that far. John Gill's got a great imagination, but sometimes I think he goes too far with it. I think she just touched the edge of his cloak. Now, let's talk about this woman. First of all, she's a woman, and she's suffering from a hemorrhage. From that, people assume or deduce that she had some kind of vaginal discharge for 12 years. Probably, this is the NIV study Bible. Adam Clark says her disorder was that of that delicate nature that modesty forbade her to make any public acknowledge of it. Now, this might go to some of the psychology of this woman. She came up behind. She didn't go to him in front so that she wanted to do this secretly so nobody would see her. And she was saying to herself, so she didn't say anything out loud. She was talking to herself. I've just got to touch his garment. My dentist's son was getting a seminary degree at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. And he was taking a class, and it was a woman teaching the class. And she said, I'm going to give you the woman's point of view here. And she asked the people in the class, most of whom were men. And she, and she said, do you know, or no, I think she said, I'm going to just ask the women in the class, how do you feel when you're having your period? Do you feel good or do you feel bad? And, of course, a lot of them said they felt bad. And the, and the woman teacher said, think if you would have felt that bad for 12 years, every day of the month, every day of the year for 12 years. How bad would that be? She was a desperate woman, just like Jairus was. She was ceremonially unclean. Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 27 says this, Now if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at, the, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity. She is unclean. In other words, you're unclean whether it's a normal period or whether it's after the period. Any bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her like her bed at menstruation, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean like her uncleanness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them, t touches her bedclothes, shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. Now, all of this, of course, made her existence miserable. She was always unclean. She couldn't go into the synagogue. She couldn't go into the temples. So, you know, a skeptic might say, well, what kind of a law would do that to somebody? Well, it wasn't the law that was doing that to her. It was her sickness. And even if she was ceremonially clean, she still would have been miserable, bleeding constantly for 12 years. So this is just somebody complaining about God, when, if a skeptic would say something like that. Now, Jairus wanted Jesus to accompany him to go back home. If you recall, the centurion with a sick slave, sick slave, which happened uh, earlier in Jesus' ministry near Capernaum, that centurion just says, speak the word and he'll be okay. But Jairus wanted him to come back home. Now, you know, some people say that that just shows that Jairus didn't have faith. I don't believe that for a minute. Sometimes it just doesn't do to pray at home. We ought to go to the place of the sick and pray for them. Go out and get somebody to pray for you. There's nothing wrong with that. He could have stayed at home and prayed and said, Jesus, please pray, but he went to get him. Jesus never took any notice of, of a weakness of faith on Jairus' part. He just went. So I think that uh, even though the synagogue ruler had great faith, I don't think that implies that Jairus' faith wasn't all that great. Notice a woman approached Jesus from behind. Now, this was probably through modesty, according to John Gill, because a vaginal discharge would not be something she wanted to be open about, according to Adam Clark. And I would add the point, especially since Jesus was a man. You know, you go to a man and say, hey, you know, I'm bleeding. I, I, I've got a vaginal discharge. A little bit embarrassing. She could have been shamed or she could have been modest or she could have been both. Now, the woman touched the fringe of the garment. She might have thought there was peculiar, peculiar holiness in the fringe. 
because the Jews place so much sanctity on the wearing and using of those fringes? I don't think so. It's probably much easier to touch from behind. Jesus couldn't see her, and he could sneak up from behind. she could sneak up on him from behind and t- touch him. Now, it was reasonable for the woman to think she could be healed by touch. She no doubt had been encouraged by other stories of people being healed by touch. For example, in Luke chapter 6, verse 19, And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. All they had to do was touch him. They didn't have to say anything. They didn't have to ask Jesus. They just touched him, and they got healed. Now, this act of sneaking up behind the Messiah took a lot of guts on this woman's part. She was really something. I mean, the very fact that she touched Jesus, she made Jesus ceremonially unclean. But her faith was bolstered by that physical contact that made Jesus unclean. Some people say the contrary, say that having to touch her that she didn't have faith. I would argue exactly the opposite. Her faith was so strong, she didn't even need to ask Jesus to heal her. She just touched, touched him. So I don't say that touching Jesus shows lack of faith. It's amazing what, how people look at the same set of circumstances and come up with exactly opposite conclusions. Matthew 9, verse 22. Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. Well, there's, you know, your faith has made you well. So how can we say touching is a lack of faith like some people say? That's nonsense. Jesus acknowledged her faith. And once again, here's the connection between the faith of the recipient of healing and Jesus. He responds to faith and trust and belief in him. You cannot ever have enough faith in this hard, cruel world we have to live in. The more faith you have, the more Jesus will operate. And I know that the word faith people teach this, but that doesn't mean they're wrong about that. They might be heretics about a lot of other things, like little gods and all that stuff, but the scripture clearly says more faith, more uh, response on Jesus's part. Notice that the woman was made well. This was an instantaneous healing that was of a sickness that had lasted for 12 years, so it was obviously miraculous. The Greek word there for healing is sozo, uh, which means not only to be healed, but to be saved. Now, because of that, the NIV Study Bible says Jesus is talking about spiritual deliverance as well as physical. For example, in Mark 5, verse 34, we read this. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. The go in peace is supposed to talk to spiritual salvation and be free from your affliction is supposed to refer to her freedom from her sickness. I don't believe that. I just think go in peace was just a polite way of saying bye-bye. But it could, it, but it doesn't matter really because obviously the woman was spiritually healed as she could be uh, given the fact that she believed in Jesus. Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Now notice before, when Jesus said that, He turned to see her, but Jesus turning and seeing her said, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. If we look at the synoptic passages here, we'll see what happened is that Jesus felt the healing power flowing out of him, and he turned around and said, Someone touch me. Who was it? Luke chapter 8 verse 46 says, But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. He didn't have to turn and point out the woman, but he did. He could have just said, Somebody touched me, the power flowed out of me, and he could have kept right on walking toward Jairus' house, uh, house. But he didn't do it. Now, the synoptic gospels tell us that Jesus first asked who had touched him, that Peter and the disciples answered him, that said, this woman behind you touched, touched you, and he looked around, and then his eyes fastened on the woman. Why did he do that? Why did he turn around? Here's some options as to why he did it, all from the imaginative John Gill. So God would get some more glory, says John Gill because everyone would know that this woman was healed. Could have been that he turned around to commend the woman's faith and to encourage her, and I believe that's probably why he did it. 
He could have done it to strengthen the faith of Jairus, who was facing the death of his daughter, and all of a sudden he sees this woman who'd been had an issue of blood for 12 years miraculously healed. Now, I don't know how the people knew she had an issue of blood, but and somehow they knew that, that this woman was healed, maybe what she said. Now, he called her daughter. This was an affable, courteous way of speaking to show her that he did not blame her for touching him. The woman was actually probably worried about that. Mark chapter 5, verse 33 says this, But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She was fearing and trembling even after she, even after she felt that power of God flow through her body. Now, Jesus commended her faith. This is one more example of how the recipient's faith affected Jesus' willingness to heal. As I said earlier, here's what he said to the woman. He says, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And faith is a synonym for belief and trust. The woman was healed at once before Jesus even said anything, just to show how Jesus was operating in such supernatural power. The woman knew that. Mark 5, verse 28 through 30. For she said, if I can just touch his robes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was cured of her affliction. She felt something. And, of course, at once Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him, so he felt something, too, the power of God flowing out of him, even though he was not conscious of the, of the act of healing, which is kind of interesting. Matthew chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. When Jesus came into the official's house, now we're getting back to the walk to Jairus' house to heal his dying daughter. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy dishonor, he said, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. Well, as a matter of fact, she had died. But to Jesus, death is just like sleep. It's no big deal to him. Who were these flute players? They were professional mourners, musicians lined musicians hired to play in mourning ceremonies and there may have been a lot of them because Jairus was a prominent he was a leader he was a synagogue leader so there might have been a lot of them even the poorest of Jews was required to have two pipers and one mourning woman even if they were poor according to Adam Clark now here's a scripture in Jeremiah to, to give you the Jewish feel the cultural feel about these professional mourners this is Jeremiah speaking in verse 20 in chapter 9 verses 17 through 21 thus says the Lord of hosts consider and call for the mourning women that they may come and send for the wailing women that they may come let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may shed tears and our eyelids flow with water he's referring to the oncoming 587/86 destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon Jeremiah goes on for a voice of wailing is heard from Zion how are we ruined? We are put in great shame, for we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Now hear the word of the Lord, O you women. Again, the professional mourning women. Let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing, and everyone her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up through our windows. It has entered our palaces to cut off the children from the streets, the young men from the town squares. Well, that's true mourning there. But when people died, they would hire mourners who were not necessarily sincerely mourning from their heart, but they're more mourning for pay. They were mercenary mourners. Yeah, the word professional mourners actually mentioned in Amos, Amos 5.16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas, and in all the streets they say, alas, alas, they also call the farmer to mourning and professional mourners to lamentation. Now, the crowd was noisy because they were hired to be noisy. The crowd was the crowd of mourners who were hired to wail and lament. Now, Jesus said that they were asleep. That's the common 
euphemism for death, but in this case it really was true. Well, I mean, it was true that she was dead, but I mean, the, the euphemism was quite appropriate because he raised her from her sleep. Raised her from her death just as if she was asleep. We learn in the parallel passages in Mark and Luke that on the way to Jairus's house, the news was brought to the group that the daughter was actually dead, so it was no use to continue on. But Jesus did continue on, and he healed her. He raised her from the dead. The girl was 12 years old, as I said earlier, from Mark 5:42. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old, and they were utterly astounded. Go to Matthew 9, verses 25 through 26. But when the crowd had been sent out, sent out of the room, this, this, I'm going back now before she was raised, but when the crowd had been sent out, he entered, Jesus entered the room and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all the land. Now there's a question, why did Jesus send out the crowd before he went in there to heal her? Here's some options to keep the healing a secret. Jesus was always worried about that. He was worried about being proclaimed a Messiah prematurely and thus starting a revolution and thus coming, getting the Romans to come down on the Jews' heads before he had a chance to train his disciples and set up his kingdom. He could have done it because to show that Jesus was not seeking popular applause, he was just trying to get this girl healed. He didn't want it to look like he was bragging. I don't know, maybe so. He wanted to show the scoffers and the doubters that they weren't worthy to be in the room, says John Gill. They had shown Jesus such scorn and contempt. He said, look, I don't want you guys around here. Get out of here. If you're going to if if you're going to be so obnoxious and, and laugh at me because I said the girl was asleep, I don't want you around. All right. Well, that could be too. They entered the room. Who entered the room with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, and the girl's parents? We learned that from Mark and Luke. So those four went in the room. Now, it says he entered and took her by the hand. That immediately defiled Jesus. Defiled, he was he was defiled under the Levitical law. They, he was never worried about that. In fact, John Gill says he wasn't defiled. It, this, this did not defile him any more than touching the leper or the bleeding woman's touching his clothes. For these actions produced supernatural effects, which came not under the cognizance of the law. Well, that's a good question about how, how much under the law was Jesus. And to me, if he's ritually unclean, I don't think it really matters. That doesn't prove to me that he violated the law. He's just ritually unclean. If you were ritually unclean under the law, that nobody would accuse you of breaking the law. It just says you're ritually unclean. You can't go to the synagogue for a while. I don't know if Jesus ever did that. He did break the law, though, when he said he declared some foods unclean, declared some foods clean, which the Mosaic law did not declare clean. And he had the right to do that. Nobody else did, but he did. That's how I kind of reconcile that. I'm not sure about this, but when Matthew 5, when it says not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away, and then I think, well, what about when you declared some foods clean? I think that what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5 was the law was in effect for everybody except for the Son of God because he's the new lawgiver. He's the new Moses. He can declare what's clean and unclean, and he can tell what law is valid and what law is not valid as much as he wants to. Numbers 19.16 tells about the law of uncleanness. Anyone in the open field who touches a person who has been killed by the sword or has died or who even touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days we found out from mark that when jesus rose this little girl he called out to her talitha kum then he took the child by the hand and said talitha kum which is translated little girl i say to you get up i think that's aramaic translated for translated for the greek speaking readers of mark matthew didn't translate it i, I, I wonder if that's because i wonder if it's because his, most of his readers were jewish and they didn't need it translated it's kind of an interesting, and you wonder why they even bothered to put that in for English-speaking uh, people. I don't know. 
So the little girl got up. She got off the bed, walked around the house. Food was ordered to be given to her. She was fully restored to life. And all these details, of course, are recorded to show that this was a true resurrection. She had a lot of energy for one who had just been dead. <laughs> and notice that the news spread all around. This is despite Jesus' efforts to keep it quiet, if that's why he was trying to do this privately in the room, if that was his real reason. It didn't work. People, they just couldn't help talking about Jesus. That's the end of this video. Next video, we'll start with the healing of two blind men. Hope you enjoyed it. Actually, I meant to say the next audio.